I first met Jamie McRae, who you're about to hear in a conversation, when we were teaching together in Canada. It was January. The sanctum site for the Canadian process is in Alberta. And Jamie would head out every morning, 4.45. It's pitch dark. He's totally bundled up. He's got a face mask. His hat is pulled over his head down low. He has a headlamp. And every morning, Jamie would head out for a five-mile run on the windswept plains of Alberta. What a man. I hope you enjoy his kindness and his wisdom in this conversation. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and Jamie McRae is here with us today. He is a Hoffman process teacher, or as they say in Canada, process. And he's been a teacher for 30 years, 29 years, Jamie? Uh, about 30 years, yes. 30 years. He was a high school and middle school teacher for 40 years, Jamie? 42 years, yes. I was head of an art department. Head of an art department for 42 years. And that puts you, having just had a birthday, what number birthday was that, Jamie? <laughs> 69. 69. And you might think that that ages him. It does not. If you knew Jamie, and I've taught with you uh, a bunch of times in Canada, if you know Jamie, you know that he presents and in all aspects of his energy feels like he's about 30. You're such a youthful, wonderful spirit, Jamie. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. And I attribute that all to the Hoffman process. What's the what's the true part of that? Are you teasing or does that feel true? No, I, I, I the life I have today, I know I wouldn't have had this life, the life I've lived and where I'm moving if I hadn't have done the process. I don't know where I'd be, but I just know I wouldn't be in this space of surrender and confidence and making choices that are connected to my spiritual self. I know that. You know, in the process, we talk about be, do, have. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about you really embody the youthful, grounded, uh, confident spirit of your spiritual self, don't you? I hope to. Uh, that's my um, part of my mission statement is to take each day and leave each day with the tools and practices I gain from the process. But it's also to know that um, I have a choice and I can either choose to um, look at the day from a point of um, gratitude, or I can let my feelings take over and fear comes in, and that's not where I want to go. I love that approach, the one of gratitude versus fear. But I imagine that's a skill that you've honed over time. It's, it's 
not as easy as you framed it or simple, but maybe it is. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, like anybody, I've had some um, amazing um, times in my life and I've had some really, really challenging times. I mean, I, I left a marriage, I had a number of things and those were not easy to deal with. But I just knew in the back of my mind that if I stayed true to myself and followed the voice that is my spiritual self, that I would get through those things. But, you know, I, I've had pain in my life. Jamie, when you say, listen to the voice of my spiritual self, there are many students and grads who struggle to hear that voice. How did you get access to it? And how do you listen to that voice? How does it come to you? Well, I knew when I completed my process, um, that was obviously a challenge because I did really tap into that in my process. And uh, of course, when I got into my life and you know back into my teaching and things like that, the voice that I trusted in the process was being clouded over by the other voices of, uh, you know, as we, in the process we call our dark side or our shadow side. And it takes work to trust. You hear a, a message from your spiritual self and it's like, okay, I feel like resisting, but I'm going to trust that this is my spiritual self and step forward into that action. And, um, you know, it hasn't failed me. As people end the process and they finish those powerful seven days, those intense seven days, what are some of the things you say that will help them show up to life outside the process? The main emphasis I do is that you're leaving with tools and practices. You're going back into your life that hasn't changed, but you have changed. And how you deal with the things that come up in your life are going to be what are going to create your reality. So it's the tools and practices that they leave from the process to stay connected to those. That's what's going to have the, um, the movement forward. And why is the toolbox analogy one you use? Well, I think that most people have a toolbox of some form, an actual toolbox in a home. I have one. And I've, for example, I always talk about the fact that I have a lot of screwdrivers in that toolbox. And I tend to go to the same screwdriver all the time because it works for me. It feels right in my hand. It's got the right length. I can torque it properly. But there are times when there's things that I have to fix in my home that require a different screwdriver. And I can go and get the other screwdriver and it works and it solves the problem. So the toolbox is full of various things. Not that I'm going to use them every single day. All of the tools of the, of the process are there. When those things come up in my life that I'm challenged, I go to my toolbox. I go to my toolbox that I learned in the process. And I also go to my practices, my daily practices. So you reference practices and tools, and I think this is a, maybe we're geeking out a little bit, but this feels like an important topic to just pump the brakes on and slow down the difference between tools and practices. Can, we, can you help us break that down a little bit? Well, uh, the way I explain it is tools are used to fix something. Uh, practices are things I do on a daily basis that keeps me connected to my authentic spiritual self. So that could be um, gratitude each day. I get up around 4.30 in the morning. I do my three pages of uh, writing. And uh, for me, that puts a, what I call a leash on my intellect so that I empty my brain before I go into my day because I know that the way I start my day is the way the energy is going to flow through the rest of the day. So I want to make sure I get that voice that's not my authentic self out of my head. Uh, exercise is important, daily walk. Those are my practices. They're what keep me connected to I'm on the right path and listening to my spiritual voice. 
then there's an event or situation that happens in my life and I have to use a tool. So if I'm confronted with um, something that creates anger within me, I can feel the anger in there. It's like, okay, this is where I have to get out that anger. And it can be through bashing with the bat like we do in the process. It can be my, my run when I do a run or when I'm at the gym. So it's like specifically choosing that tool to deal with a situation, move the energy. But the practices to me are the key. It's what you do on a daily basis to keep yourself connected to that inner voice that you hear in the process so that I heard in my process. I love that. And this idea of tools breaking the patterns down from the outside and practices building us up from the inside that kind of outside inside of tools and inside outside of practices what do grads as they come back pre-covid as they used to come back what do you hear from grads about what works oh my gosh so many stories from so many people over the years it's just the power of the process that has allowed these people to move forward. When they came in the process, um, dealing with what they're dealing, and they leave, and then you see them a couple of years later, and it's just like, you know, my life is different. I'm dealing with things differently. I don't always use the tools, but I know they're there if I have to use them. Daily practices are very important. They stay connected to the people that they did the process with, and that's very important as well, too. So there's a, a community that's built there as well. So, um, yeah, they, uh, it's, and especially the vision. The other thing is, you know, tapping into the vision in the process, the vision of where you want to be. And they come back and they tell you, you know, it's like I'm living by the water. It may not be the ocean, but I'm living by the water. Like, I just can't believe that I'm directing my life the way that I'm directing my life. And it's because of the tools and practices and that seven-day experience they had in the process. So visioning and the importance of people charting a course why why do you think visioning is so important and i guess could ask the opposite why don't people vision more in their lives about where they want their life to go i don't think well again it's it's not a tool that they're we're not taught to as children or even you know in our lifetime to really write where you'd like to be what what would it be like what would you feel like in those situations i mean people are always searching for something else but they don't know what it is. And that's not, for me, that's something else. I want to define what that is, how I'd like it to show up in my life. Is it going to show up exactly as the words I've written? No. But the feeling or the um, what I'm experiencing I will get when I have that vision can come to me in many, many ways. And it's not about what other people are doing in the vision. It's more about how you're showing up. Is that right? It's about how I'm showing up. Yeah. Yeah. How I, and it's, it's always coming from the eye, right? It's, it's like first person, present tense. So I'm living, you know, in this home, I'm, I'm working this type of work. I'm also a, a, a practicing artist as well, too. So I am um, often use the vision um, with the creative spirit because creativity it can be taught to a certain level, but it's listening to your intuitive voice and sitting down and doing your preliminary drawings and doing your prep work. And then you get into creating the actual art piece. And then you step back and it's like, wow, how did I manifest that? Where did that come from? <laughs> it came from years of experience, obviously, but it started with that initial uh, idea. And I think it's the same thing in applying in the various areas of my life. An idea comes to me. I think it's from my spiritual self. It's like, okay, what's that going to look like? What do I need to do to make that happen? 
and step into action. Action is so important. Awareness, will, action. But Jamie, I want to I want to go to the creative piece. And what do you say? Because it sounds like you have a response when people say, "I'm not creative." That's not me. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, in my mind, <laughs> everybody is creative. I, I think that that is something, again, that the process brings to a lot of people is that creative energy was taken away from them uh, from their childhood. You watch children. They're drawing, they're painting, they're scribbling, they're, they're doing art, if you want to call it, the creative exercises there. And then as they get into the school system, you know, that becomes less important, become more and more disconnected from it. So I really encourage people to, you know, pick up a piece of paper and a pencil and just start. Like, they'll say, well, I can't draw a straight line. And my response is good, because I don't want any straight lines. Let's just, let's just get in there and let your body, it's stored in our body, all that creative energy is stored in our body, let's begin to let it out. And it's really quite amazing, because I, I do a lot of classes, and I run a lot of workshops. And when I see people tap into that creative energy that they had before, the joy that they get from that, and the amazement that they created something out of nothing. And it's like, yeah, that's inside you. That's inside each and every one of us. You know, that manifesting of that um, that creative energy. That's what, And I think it, you know, it's about moving life forward, and creative energy is certainly needed to do that. Jamie, you are doing such a beautiful job of explaining the crossover between tapping into spirit and being a creative artist in the world outside of you spirit on the inside manifesting and expanding to create the art outside of you what i'm just struck and grateful we haven't had artists on and here you are visual artists and here you are helping everybody chart a path towards expressive creativity visually you know there's there's so many ways to be creative Uh, you can do it through your cooking you can do it through gardening you can do it through fashion anyway you know uh, there's just many ways you can let your creativity um, exist in the world and i think that every art piece when you think about it is never existed in the world before that person made it happen so you can have all these ideas in your head but until you take them out of your head and you manifest them in the world that's i think what moves our world forward is people taking those thoughts believing in themselves taking the steps taking the action failing believe me every piece i create is not a masterpiece (laughs) it's a there has been so many failures but i followed what i thought was where i was being led and the other that out of that failure came a direction for me to go and I know that that wouldn't have happened unless I'd have had that failure. And I think it's the same thing in my life. I've gone after things and, you know, it, in my body, it felt kind of wasn't the right thing to do. And I didn't listen to that. And of course, I ended up not being successful or failing in that particular point. But I know that at least I tried. And that failure is now directing me to go to the next step. So failing, I think, is very important in the art. Yeah, Jamie, how would you describe your art? Is it mixed media? I know it's some photography. It's photography and mixed media, acrylic paint on wooden panels, and then I apply resin on top of it. So I take the camera out, I explore the city. It's about the iconic images of the city and people and streetscapes. Take it into Photoshop and play with it in Photoshop and... Yeah, it's um, it's the interesting thing too. When I look back, I mean, I've got 
thousands of photographs I've taken over the years. And a lot of those places don't exist anymore. Uh, and it's kind of a reminder to me that, you know, while we think the world is constant, there's a lot of the, um, I don't know if you want to call it destruction, but things, things change. And it's a metaphor for me to realize, you know, like today is today, tomorrow is tomorrow, the past is the past. That stuff in the past is just an image, just like my photographs. That place doesn't exist anymore. It's an image. And to let go of my past and move forward to where I am in this present day and see the city I'm in right now from this present perspective. And when you talk about your city, you're talking about Toronto. Toronto, yes. And uh, I have a confession that when the shutdown hit and the pandemic came, one, I did a little armchair travel via your art. I, I got to know the city of Toronto a little better by the artwork you posted from your walking and, and traveling around the city of Toronto. Tell us a bit about Toronto. Why, why do you love it so much? Oh, well, I'm, most people will talk about the love of their city, I guess. Um, Toronto is so multicultural, and it's a city that works. Jane Jacobs was a, an early urban planner in Toronto, and she wanted this city to be a livable city. And she fought strong and hard to keep the neighborhoods from being developed and torn down. And so we have amazing um, communities within the Toronto area itself. Um, just the, the variety of around the world. You can go anywhere. We have a little Italy, a little Bangladesh. We have a little Norway. You know, it's little areas where people from those different countries come together. They brought their businesses, their restaurants. And so you can really can travel the world in Toronto. It's just an amazing experience. Beautiful. And so you, you came from Canada to, to do the process some 33 years ago. Is that true? I actually uh, did it in 1990, and it was the second process that was held here in Canada. So the, the teachers came up from the States, and, they, um, and Bob Hoffman was a part of that. So I got to have a, a number of experiences with, his, with um, meeting Bob Hoffman as well, too. So I'm really, I'm really honored to have had that experience. Bob knew you as a teacher, so you trained soon thereafter? Yeah, I trained, um, I would say, about two years after I did my process. I knew in the process I wanted to be a teacher. I, just, I had this calling. I just knew it. And I went into all of these patterns. I was like, no, it's not, you know, it's not possible. I'm a full-time school teacher. I've got a family. I can't make it work. And then I just stopped myself. I said, Jamie, stop this. The first thing you have to do is apply. You don't even know if you'll be accepted. So stop this fear stuff that's going on. I sent my application in, and I didn't hear anything for about, uh, I guess, four or five months. And I thought, well, there's the answer for you. And then suddenly I got this um, email, uh, letter saying, you know, we'd like to welcome you into the teacher training program. Like, <sighs> then it was like, wow, how am I going to make this work? <laughs> how am I going to make this work? And it worked. I found a way, and the Institute found a way to make it work. And um, here I am, 32 years later. And what's one thing you remember from Bob? Did he have a a saying to you? Because you knew him near the end of his life, didn't you? Yeah, I can remember uh, a number of things um, from Bob. I guess the, the main thing was about the structure of the process. He would always, in the training, he'd say, okay, Jamie, tell me one thing you've learned that's new today. And I was like, I was always just so nervous because I'm like, 
ah, there's so much to master in this, in this process. And finally, he would say things to me like, you know, Jamie, you don't have to worry about the structure of the process. It's kind of like, it's like a Christmas tree. You can put ornaments on, you can move the ornaments around, you can take the ornaments off, put new ones on, but the tree stays the same. You're not allowed to change the tree. And so for me, it was just to really understand, okay, Jamie, get the structure down. You know, and I think that's the beauty of the process is over the years, it's gone from an eight-day process now to a seven-day process and, and things get enriched and sort of uh, shifted around. But it's still the same structure that I did in my process 30-some years ago. And I guess, you know, process has been around for about 50 years now. So it's pretty pretty steady, that structure. And I imagine you'll, you're going to continue teaching. Why do you like teaching so much, Jamie? You know, I, I'm really blessed that I'm able to do this work just to know that I'm helping people change their lives. At the end of the process during the ceremony of integration, and the, when they're standing there and they've crossed the bridge, moving into the new life, and, and that deep peace is playing in the background, and there's just this amazing quality of calmness and peace and energy with all of these people. And I know that that's what they're taking out in the world. Um, mission statement of the process is to create world peace by creating inner peace one person at a time. And I look at those people, and the next morning when they're leaving, I think they're out there. They're going to change the world. That's what's going to change the world. And I think that's what keeps me doing the work. It's just so powerful. But again, I just feel so, so blessed that um, whatever it is, power to be, consciousness, universe, whatever, um, chose me to be able to do this work. And I'm quite honored by that. And you've, as a, a teacher as well, a school teacher, I mean, you have all these ex-students, ex-grads from the process. Do you keep in touch with them? Do they get back in touch with you occasionally over the years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, some now it's kind of interesting because now students I taught are actually taking the process. And so... <laughs> When I so I'll be looking at somebody in the background and go like that person looks awfully familiar, and then lo and behold, it's like yeah, you taught me in grade nine and grade ten. I go, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> they're showing up to do the process work. So, but I just want to put in there that when I when I I was about halfway through my teaching career when I took the process, I guess, or well into it, and I became a totally different teacher when I came back uh, because I knew that students who were in transference to me, it wasn't about me. I was the one who was um, the trigger for them, you know, because students can go into some interesting behaviors in the classroom. <laughs> and I came back and I had a totally different uh, way of dealing with that in the classroom. Um, my energy changed in the classroom. The classrooms became more productive, more cooperative. Uh, and I know, again, it's because of that, the, the process work that I did. So it showed up in my life in a number of ways, but the classroom was one of those. Those students w were the gifts of the work that you did. They got the, the gifts of your work. Um, but, but let me ask you a little bit about that, Jamie, because when we talk about transference, what we're talking about is reacting to someone in the same way that you reacted to a, one parent or both parents. And, and so part of what you're saying is that these high school students were in transference with you, although maybe not seeing you as their parent, they were reacting to you uh, as if you were a parent. That seems fairly normal. What did you do differently 
that helped you navigate that as a teacher? I learned to listen to them. I learned to, there's, in my, my experience, and one of the things I teach in the process is that there's four things a child needs. They need to be seen, they need to be heard, they need to be acknowledged, and they need to be soothed. Wait, let's just pause there. Seen. Heard. Heard. Acknowledged. Acknowledged. And soothed. And soothed. S-O-O-T-H-E-D. Soothed. And adults need exactly the same thing. We want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be acknowledged, and we want to be soothed. And if we're seen, that can be a way of soothing us. If we're heard, that's a way of soothing us. So when these students <clears throat> are going off and they're, you know, they're anger with me or something like that, it's okay, what am I missing? What have I not seen? What have I not heard? How can I approach a student differently? Because it's not about me. I knew it wasn't about me. They're just doing what they're doing. And I had a possibility, I had the, um, the um, awareness that I wanted to respond to them. And so I would listen to them, you know, and, um, and work through and engage in conversations. And maybe it didn't end on the first day. Maybe we had to go back over it a couple of times, reach out to their parents, find out what was going on, right? But I wanted to show them that I cared. So I think those four things are just so important in any relationship. And part of what you're saying is that once you did do that, it created so much ease, trust, flow, and learning happened so much more quickly. Is that what you saw as the result of really giving your students those four things? Yeah, especially the trust, because they, they, they began to know that um, they could trust me that I wasn't going to go into a pattern of being the authoritarian and, you know, dismissing them and, um, you know, go back to work. And there's something going on with them. And I wanted to help them work through that. So, you know, I, I could um, confront them on things They could confront me on my ideas and thoughts. And, um, you know, we could move forward from that. But the trust is so important. Jamie McRae, the school teacher, the Hoffman teacher, the mixed media artist. What what is it like on this Sunday morning? You and I talking. Uh, what's it like to cast your eyes upon your history as a teacher and Hoffman teacher and artist? What do you notice? It's a crazy journey. Uh, I look back and I think, oh God, I can't believe I'm where I'm at. All the things that I've gone through and dealt with and you know but to be a process teacher to have had all those years in the classroom molding minds of students and helping their creativity to come out previously being married um i was went through a divorce and i was we're still best friends my son is 42 years old now and uh, i've got two grandkids and so i've got that aspect of my life which is developing as well too and it's just uh, as i say i wake up in the morning i'm full of gratitude oh my eyes are open i'm part of the world again Okay, so I'm still here. I still have a purpose here. And I want to stay connected to whatever that purpose might be. And that's, you know, through my, my work and my art, and my grandkids, and my son. Yeah, pretty powerful. And we'll put in the show notes, Jamie, where people can see some of your artwork uh, and get a sense of your take on the uh, city of Toronto. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell you, it's been great talking to you this morning as well, too. It's just uh, to be able to um, to be able to speak about 
this experience I've had over the 30 years as a process teacher, um, you don't get an opportunity very often <laughs> for people. People don't ask questions very often, so I don't get an opportunity to really reflect on on what that 30 years has been like. So I really appreciate this. You're you're welcome, and maybe we can part on that last note of. Wouldn't it be great if the world had more curiosity, if the world asked more questions? Uh, yeah. If people stepped into their creativity, problem-solving, look at things differently, get out there, explore. This world is full of so many amazing things and amazing people, amazing adventures. And yes, we've been locked down through COVID, but I think I've learned a lot of things from that as well, too. Um, that have been lessons for me. There's lessons in everything, but to get out there and you only get one life. You only get one life. <laughs> so, you know, as I say to people in the process, take your life, live it to the fullest, take the risks, bust through the fear. You know, you don't know where it's going to take you, but you know at the end of your life, you'd rather have tried a million things and the regrets that you didn't do anything. Jamie, thank you very much. You're welcome. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.